Okay, if you could make your way back to your seats. And while you're making your way back to your seats, if you could pull open your Bibles. And let me remind you something about your Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. We believe it is the authority over us. You are at a church that preaches and teaches the Word of God. And we love the Word of God, and we trust the Word of God, and we break open the Word of God and try to rightly divide it the best that we can. And preaching is the dividing of the Word of God and the bringing it to our lives. So I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open. So uh, it's going to be Acts chapter 22. So if you want to start making your way to Acts chapter 22, I would invite you to be looking at the Word of God as we begin working through this. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and these are thought-provoking questions. And yes, dogs included, they can answer. Here would be the first question I have for you. Now, you ready? Here we go. And I want you to really think about this. You can answer out loud if you want to, but you don't need to. It's meant to be something that you think about. Do you avoid giving your testimony of salvation because your story seems boring? Question number two, have you not shared your testimony of salvation in Jesus Christ because you're not really sure when you actually got saved. Now, while you're thinking of those two questions, let me bring in my own story. I grew up in a Christian family. At four years old, I knelt next to my parents' bed with my mom, and I prayed with her and asked God to forgive me my sins so that I could go to heaven. I was four years old, up in central New York, Derider, New York. And several years went by, and there really was, as I look back, no change in my life until I reached fifth grade. And in fifth grade, I was reading my Bible one night. Everybody in the house had gone to bed. And I'm trying to find the story of Samson. I grew up on comic books. I read about superheroes. Samson was one of my favorite stories, but I could not find it anywhere in the Bible. Frustrated, I got out of bed and I went out into the kitchen and I got some orange juice. I remember this so clearly. I came back with my glass of orange juice and I laid back down in my bed. I was lying on my left side. I seriously remember this so clearly. You'll know why in a minute. And when I had gotten up to go get orange juice, my Bible had fallen on the floor. So when I came back, I lied back down, laid back down, and I reached down and I grabbed my Bible and I brought it back up onto my bed, trying to resume my search for Samson. And there the Bible was open to the story of Samson. Now, I know this sounds like, yeah, well, this is no big deal, but I have to tell you that what happened to me that night, it was 10.05. I'm telling you, I remember this so clearly. It felt like lightning, like heat went from the crown of my head down to my feet and back up. And even though I was young, I knew God had done that in me because he was delighting in me because I wanted to read his word. Now, let me tell you what happened. That night began two years of relentless love for God in my little heart, where I studied the Bible every single morning, every single night. 
I could not get enough time with God in prayer. Two years, it would not release me from that grip. But I began to drift away from God, and not until the summer after my freshman year of college, after having turned deeply into the world, pursuing sin, did God turn my heart back to him in repentance and give me again a delight for him and his word. So my question is, when was I actually saved? Was it four years old when I prayed the sinner's prayer? Was it fifth grade when God powerfully came upon me? Or was it my freshman year when I repented of sin and began to walk with him faithfully even to this day? When was it? You know why? Here's my answer. I have no idea. But I know I am saved. And nothing is sweeter to me than to know Jesus and serve him with my life and be ready to testify of his great mercy in saving me who did not deserve salvation. Now, you might have a testimony of being saved out of great sin. Maybe you were deeply involved in addiction. We have had people in our church and have people in our church deeply involved in prostitution. And maybe your story of how God rescued you is one that is amazing and it leaves everybody spellbound in hearing it. Or maybe you're like me and you're not really sure when it happened and it seems almost that you just slipped into your salvation. Well, whatever, if you have a great story of, of horrific sin and God rescued you in his mercy, or a story of growing up in a Christian home, and as far back as you know, you've always believed, yet you know that you know that you know you are saved. Well, whatever your story is, even a child who comes to trust in Jesus for salvation does so because God has worked supernaturally. No one, my friends, no one, not even a child, naturally loves and trusts God. So your story begs to be told. And it's a story worth testifying of. And what we're about to hear is the testimony of Paul in front of a mob that is trying to kill him. Now, I want you to imagine that for a moment. And for most of us, if not all of us, we're going to have to imagine it because he is now testifying of the mercies of Jesus in front of a crowd that absolutely hates him enough to try to murder him. And I've got four things that I want you to learn along with me. Here we go, number one. I want you to begin thinking about who you were before God saved you. Now, can you do that even right now? Who you were before God saved you. And hopefully the, you are in Acts chapter 22. And if you're watching this online, I hope you have your Bibles open. Here we go in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense. This is Paul. He's testifying in front of a mob. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, that's actually more accurately, Aramaic language, which is very similar, they became even more quiet. 
There had just been a flash mob, people running from all over the temple. There are thousands of people. They have gathered for the day of Pentecost. They are in the city of Jerusalem, and they have gathered like lightning, furious at Paul, beating him. Paul was rescued by the tribune, who is the commander of a thousand soldiers, rescued from being beaten to death, and he's being carried into the barracks, and Paul begs the Tribune, would you please let me address my countrymen, my fellow Jews? And the tribune allows him to do so. See, he had been accused by them of speaking against the law of God. That would be mainly the Old Testament to the Jewish person, the Hebrew Scriptures. He was accused of being against the nation of Israel, that they were favored by God uniquely among the nations. And he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the interior of the temple, something that they had Roman permission to stone to death anyone who did it. They had been intending to beat him to death. He was rescued, end of chapter 21, He begs for the opportunity to address a mob. It was granted, and look what he says. He was given, or he is giving, a defense, verse 1. He's giving a defense of the gospel, and he does it in the form of a testimony. So let me get your attention here for a moment. Now, I really don't know a lot of you deeply well. I know some of you deeply well, but I don't know all of you deeply well, so I don't really know all of your stories There are certain people in here, actually a lot of them, and people all around our church, where I have sat with them, and I have heard their testimony of salvation, and I have seen the changes that it's making in their lives. I mean, listen, if you claim to be a Christian, but your life is no different morally, or you don't look any more like Christ in your life than you did five years ago, you really need to begin to wonder, am I truly a believer? Paul is giving his defense in the form of a testimony. So a lot of you, if not maybe perhaps most of you, you have a testimony. You have something that you can tell other people about who you were before you were saved. And this is exactly what Paul begins to do, verse 3. I am a Jew, he says, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way, that means the Christians, the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can, can bear me witness." Well, you know, at that time, there's about 6 million Jews worldwide, historians tell us. 5 million of them lived outside of Israel. There's about 1 million of them living in the land of Israel. Paul was one of the 6 million Jews. He was born outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. He was born in Tarsus. And then he came later, almost like graduate school, because he went to college in Tarsus. And then he came back to Jerusalem, what one might maybe in modern words say was his master's degree. And he studied under a Pharisee, a rabbi actually, what they call the great one. He's the most respected rabbi of his day. His name is Gamaliel. 
And Paul is in school to become a Pharisee. That means he's going to become a Jewish pastor who teaches the word of God and makes disciples. And he strictly obeyed the law of God. He was zealous for God. And as all of the Jewish leaders knew, he did everything he could to persecute Christians. He imprisoned them. He put some of them to death. Paul was the man who was giving supervision to the martyrdom of Stephen. He was an angry, murderous, religious fanatic. And then everything in his life changed. Now you have a story. Believers, brothers and sisters, you have a story. And I'm asking you to reflect for a moment, who were you before God saved you? What was your life like? And I'm going to anticipate some of your questions, but I don't really have much of a story because I was very little when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Hang on, I'm going to come back to that. Number two, how did God save you? Who were you before God saved you? And then now you can testify how God did save you. And we should understand every person needs to be saved, and some would argue with that. And so I would give an explanation for why every person needs to be saved. Now, before I explain, I'm actually going to give you some theology, and you should not be afraid of it. That just literally means the study of God. I'm just going to help you understand a little bit more the natural state of every human being. Now, some of you here, I do know your story. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. Some of you here, I'm pretty sure, have not yet come to Jesus. And I am so incredibly impressed that you keep coming here. I'm absolutely pleased. This is where we want you to be. This is where we are going to love you. And this is where you're going to find a family that you can belong to. But for some of you, you do not yet believe. And I want you to look inwardly to your life. Your life is broken. It is miserable. You cannot stop drinking. You are doing drugs. I'll be very candid with you. We've been finding syringes in our church. We love you. But you need Jesus. We love you, but you need Jesus. And your life will be broken until you come to him. And you, I hope, will prayerfully one day understand how to give your testimony of how God did save you. But everybody needs to be saved. And I want you to know what the Bible says. Romans 3, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Everybody needs to be saved. Oh, yes, there are unbelievers who care for their neighbors. Yes, you know people who are not Christians who give money to charities. And they are just honestly incredibly nice people. But if one wants to argue, and by the way, this is the argument I get more than almost any other. If you want to argue that your good works will save you, then you need to understand that every one of your good works is going to be examined against the standard of God's perfection. So everything you claim as a good work, 
as your reason for why God wants to save you is going to be put up next to his perfection. And when the unsaved talk of their good works, here's almost always, in fact, I rarely see an exception, their standard is made up in their own mind what's good enough to save them, and they almost always compare against somebody else. I'm not as bad as that person. I don't do that. Well, they don't do this, and I do. Therefore, God must be pleased with me. And I'm going to tell you, if you're taking those good works into the courtroom of God, he's going to put them next to his perfection, and you're going to all of a sudden see, wait a minute, my good works don't look so good. They will not save you. In fact, the Pharisees tried it. Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Let me put it a little bit differently, like that drunkard, like that drug addict, like that out of work person, like that welfare recipient. That's how people sometimes view, they put him in a caste society, I'm not as bad as that person, whereas God looks at every single person with love and treats them fairly, treats them justly. There is no favoritism with God. But when we set our deeds alongside the bar of God's perfection, they're not going to look very impressive. But here's the secret. Now listen, so far that was pretty simple. But let me tell you something that most people really do not understand about the fallacy or the falsehood of depending on their good works. Now can you hear this? It's not that your works aren't good enough, though that is true, they are not. When you compare them to God's perfection, listen, it's not that your works are not good enough. It's that they were done. You did your good works with the wrong motive. The very best of your good deeds bring pleasure to you, or maybe they even bring pleasure to others. But your motivation is not to bring glory to God. Your motivation is not to love God. It's not to obey God. It's not to please God. Any good work that does not have at the root of it the motivation to please God and obey God and love God is a work that will fail you. And Paul said, no one does good, not even one. My friends, I hope you can hear me. If you are trusting in your good works to save you, they will actually indict you because you refused to trust in Jesus and instead you trusted in yourself. Not one of us will escape the judgment of God, and should we reject Jesus, we will be indicted by our own works. So how do we testify of this? Well, look what Paul says in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? 
She's a Pharisee. And their whole system was built on what should we do to earn our salvation. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So what is a gospel testimony? Here's what I'm encouraging you. I'm encouraging you, if you're a Christian, you've got a testimony that you need to testify You need to declare. You need to share. You need to tell people about who you were before God saved you and how did you meet God? How did he save you? And I'm going to tell you three parts of that second one, how God saved you, need to be in there. Here's the first one. Salvation is always by grace. There cannot be anybody more undeserving than the Apostle Paul, or Paul before he was an apostle. He was on his way to Damascus to hurt Christians, to beat them, to kill them, to imprison them. He was the worst of the worst, undeserving of being saved, unable to earn God's forgiveness. Do you know you can't earn God's forgiveness? You cannot earn God's forgiveness, not even if you fall down in weeping and in tears and begging for God to forgive you just because you feel bad about it. Feeling bad about your sin does not grant you forgiveness. What grants you forgiveness is faith that Jesus took your sins upon him and died for them, providing a way for you to be forgiven. And when you feel really bad, and when you are repenting of your sins, or my sins, and we come to God, we appeal on the basis of what Jesus has done, not our misery, not our tears, not our weeping, not not even our sorrow. It is based alone on Jesus. If you're going to be saved, then you must see that you are undeserving of God's mercy. You do not deserve it. Now, let me really be honest with you. I've run around and run across a whole lot of people in my ministry days. And I cannot believe the number of people whom I meet that are not Christians but they believe they deserve God's mercy. It's not mercy if you deserve it. It can only be mercy if you don't. See, salvation is all by grace. Number two, our sin is against God himself. Did you see what Jesus said twice? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Who would he say? Me. Well, wait a minute. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's going to hurt Christians. He's going to to imprison Christians. He's going to put Christians to death. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? See, all of us have rebelled against the very God who created us, who has shown us nothing but love, and we are so used to thinking that our sin does not go vertical. Our sin does not reach God, but I'm going to tell you, and what you learn here, is that every sin you and I ever commit has a vertical direction. It is always against God foremost. Every single time we sin, it is a holy 
punch of rebellion to the face of God. An unholy punch of rebellion. We say, I don't want to do what you want, God, even though my conscience betrays me for the work of the law is written on our hearts. We know what God wants. It's written in there. But we defy. And that defiance is the wellspring of sinful behavior. We do not do what we ought and we do what we should not because we are rebels in our hearts. And the one that we are defying is God foremost. And it has put us into a boatload of problem. But third part of your testimony is that it needs to center on the person and the work of Jesus. I want you to notice in Paul's testimony, he's talking about noon. He's on the way to Damascus. Did you see that in your text? He's, in the, he's on the way. It's noon. It's the brightest part of the day, but a light from heaven outshines the noonday sun. And to a Jewish audience, because he's speaking, he's testifying to a Jewish audience, their mind is going automatically to the Shekinah glory of God. This is the, the light and the glory of the divine presence of God. And it outshines the sun. Jesus, God in flesh, chose Paul and saved him. Did you hear that? Paul did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose Paul. And it kind of reminds me of C.S. Lewis's testimony. I want you to listen to this. C.S. Lewis, an incredible writer, he's the one that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote this about his own salvation. You must picture me alone. He was a, an atheist, Night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England." God will come upon you. And when he comes upon you, you will not say no. Your heart will begin to turn and you will respond in active, deliberate choice. Yes, God, I want you to save me. If you're here and you are not saved, beg and plead for God to come upon you. See, like C.S. Lewis the one that Paul hated, the one that Paul was persecuting, chose him and came upon him. Those whom Jesus calls to faith will respond. They will be saved. But notice they won't always pray a sinner's prayer. That is not a formula that you will find in the Bible. Paul didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to Paul and he changed his rebellious, God-defying, sinful heart to be the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Christian, your salvation was not your natural choice, but the supernatural choice of God. And in your testimony, it may be what God uses to come upon the unbelievers that are in your life. 
Now listen, every one of you, I want you to think about something. And I want you to think about it quietly, privately, but I want you to think about it with your mind. When I ask you this question, whose face appears in your mind? Do you know any unbelievers in your life whose face just came to mind? My friends, that's the person you need to testify with. That's the one you need to talk that Jesus comes upon us. The salvation is all of grace. That Jesus can save anyone. Well, number three, not only who were you before God saved you and how did God save you, but number three, what did God save you for? Every person God saves, he delights to use. And again, we turn back to Acts, verse 17. And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste, this is Jesus speaking, and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then later he says, verse 22, and he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You know, it might surprise you to know that I had no desire. I had no desire whatsoever, no inclination at all to become a pastor. Not one bit. It's 1992, and we had just moved, my wife and I, to Atlanta, Georgia. And I was pursuing a professional counseling degree. That is what I believed was my career. Yet God began to direct my steps, and he did it in the most incredible way. My wife, when we moved to Atlanta within the first week and a half of being there, my wife began to call churches. I did not know this. I was actually out. I had gotten a job really quickly in a uh, counseling center, a psychiatric center. I was working with adolescents. My wife was at home making phone calls to churches. She did not tell me she was doing this. And she was asking, and she only had to make one phone call, by the way. The very first church she, asked, she, she got hold of, she asked the pastor, do you know of any churches looking for a youth pastor? And the pastor said, I cannot believe you just asked me that because last night our board decided and voted and approved a search for a youth pastor. And she said, I'll have my husband's resume on your desk by one o'clock this afternoon. I didn't even know she was doing this. She had asked me previously, why don't you become a pastor? And I said, why? Anybody could do a pastor's job. I don't want to be that. I want to be a professional counselor. But she saw a pastor's calling in me before I saw it. But there was a time that God personally directed my steps. Let me tell you about that. This is March 2006. I had come to the office in prayer. I was at a particularly dry place as a pastor. I was as dry as a desert. I had nothing in me, nothing to give. We had uh, over 100 kids in our youth ministry. I was overseeing all of Christian education in the church, counseling 26 people at the time. Uh, in weekly or bi-weekly fashion. And I, was, I came to the Lord and I knelt next to the couch that was in my office and I just cried out to him. I said, God, what is wrong with me? I have nothing left. Now I'm going to tell you what God did because it's the most vivid 
in my 56 years of life, the most vivid time that God has ever spoken to me. And he did not speak audibly out loud. He spoke so clearly in my mind and in my heart that he literally seared and engraved the words on me and in me. And I could quote God to this day. Tim, here is why I created you while you are on this earth. I want you to take my word and get it to the hearts of people and lead them into transformation. And then he said this, whether you are doing this in ministry or secular work, as long as you are taking my word, getting it to the hearts of people, leading them to transformation, you will be supremely happy. By the moment he finished speaking into my heart, my heart was filled again with joy, with strength, with vigor, with vitality. It is the purpose of God. And it's happened only once in my life, but it was in a time of crisis. It's when God speaks often the most clearly. Paul is testifying of his own crisis years before in Jerusalem. That's what he was speaking about when Jesus warned him to flee, saying, go, for I will send you far away. Here's your purpose, far away to the Gentiles. What did God save you for? Do you know? Have you asked God? He saved you for a reason. And don't generalize that to the point where it's no good personally. He saved you for a reason. He's given you spiritual gifts for a reason. He's given you the experiences you have for a reason. Do you know why God saved you? If you don't know, ask. And ask it of the Lord. And keep asking until he blows away the fog and he streams it into your heart. And he brings vitality and strength and purpose and fruit. Well, it's when Paul mentioned the Gentiles that we get to our fourth and final point. Trust God for the results. It's all about testifying who you were before God met you, how God did save you, and your understanding of why God saved you. What did he save you for? Finally, trust God for the results. Verse 17, up to this word, the Gentile word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. And for the second time, the tribune literally carries him, he and his soldiers, into the barracks and saves his life. But he takes him deeply into the barracks where they tied him to an upright post called tied him with the leathers. You tie your hands and your feet, your vertical, and then they begin to whip you. It's called the scourge. And he was tied, his hands are tied with leather bands. His body is taut. The soldiers are coming to whip him. And Paul says to them, what are you doing? Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And I'm going to tell you, it put the fear of God in that Roman tribune. And I'll tell you why. See, a Roman citizen could not be punished without first having a trial. 
And if any commander skipped that legal process, then what was going to be done to that prisoner by that tribune's intent would then be done to the tribune. His life could have been taken for that misstep. He was rescued, and the tribune canceled the order of whipping immediately. See, trust God for the results. It is frightening to testify of Jesus Christ. Oh, you can talk about God all day, and most people will be nodding along, and they will be excited for you, and they will agree with you, but then bring it to the name of Jesus Christ, and you will see the fury of the world unleashed on you. But you will also see the power of God unleashed on the unbelievers. What a story we see in Paul's life. A story of how we can learn to testify of Jesus, who you were before God saved you, how God saved you, what God saved you for, and to learn to trust him for the results. All right, well, I'm about to end. What do we do with this? What do we do with this message? How should it impact us? I'm going to be very brief, and let me ask you to do two things, okay? I'm going to actually separate, if I can, just in my language, the unbeliever from the believer, and let me speak to the unbeliever first. Those of you who are here and you know, you know that you are still a rebel in your heart. You have not yet bent your knee in faith to Jesus Christ. You have not trusted in him. All you may have spoken a prayer like I did at four, but there's been no change. There's been no fruit. There's been no spiritual power in your life. If that is you, let me ask you a question. Why would you persist in your rebellion? And is God even right now coming upon you? If he is, I have no systematized prayer that you have to say the right way. There is nothing like that in the, in the Bible. All I can tell you is this. Do you understand? It will be by grace that you are saved. You do not deserve it. Neither do I. It is a free gift of God, but it will only be yours when you trust in the death of and resurrection of Jesus who died on your behalf and you could be forgiven when you believe that and will you get back off your knees a new creature a new man and a new woman and will you serve God who has a purpose for you and I can tell you what the greatest purpose will ever be it is to testify of what Jesus Christ has done for you Christians, I'm going to be very frank with you. And you should be equally frank with me. It is time for the lazy Christian to get off the fence. Do not end your life in disobedience. Do not run this race having quit. Testify of Jesus. Be bold. I'm going to tell you something you're not going to want to hear. If you are not testifying of Jesus to your unsaved friends and family, you do not love them. You do not love them. Not with the love of God. 
If you truly love them, you will beg and plead for them to believe, and you will testify of what God has done with your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And as I do, the worship team is going to come up. Fathers, I pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us even now, Lord, as I trust that you are working in all of our hearts, giving some of us a boldness that we did not have before. Some of us have been exhorted to testify, to speak. But Lord, some of us have never believed. Some of us have rebelled and are rebelling even to this day. Father, I pray that you would come upon those who are in rebellion and that you will speak them the words of life deeply into their hearts. And Lord, that they would turn with your assistance to say, yes, Jesus, yes, I am a sinner. I am under your wrath and judgment but this is why your son came, I believe it. And I'm asking you to forgive my sins and give me a purpose to live for you. Lord, I'm speaking also and I'm praying also for those who are Christians. And Lord, too many of us have been lazy, irresponsible. Too many of us have been poor and unworthy servants of the most high God. We cower. We're afraid, we're apathetic, and we're unloving. Lord, would you help us to repent, myself included. Repent. And believe you for the results as we testify. Lord, as we sing this song, I pray that the words of this song will only echo the words that we've heard in this message. Lord, that you would send us out of here changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.